The idea of a parallel Earth, where the decisions of people at critical junctures created a schism, whereby another Earth sprung forth with major differences to our own, was first postulated as genuine scientific theory by Edwin Schrödinger in 1952. Since then, many scientists have argued for and against such a concept, with notable names on both sides of the argument. However, something doesn't have to be 100% scientifically valid for speculative fiction to take advantage of it. And in the world of fiction, the ideas of many Earths, or multiverses, has bubbled around in writers' consciousness for many years, giving many classic authors a chance to explore the ins and outs of a divergent history. From the Nazis winning World War II in Philip K. Dick's The Man in the High Castle, to the South winning the American Civil War in Harry Turtledove's The Guns of the South, to the Roman Empire never falling in Robert Silverberg's Roma Eterna, and everything in between, science fiction has your alternative histories covered. Some might say we're living in an alternative history right now. In comics, The Flash took the idea of a multiverse and ran with it, telling highly imaginative, high-octane adventure stories to its 1950s readership. But it was the 1967 Star Trek episode Mirror Mirror that introduced this concept to the mainstream. Even the venerable Doctor Who didn't tackle the idea of parallel universes until the 1970 serial Inferno. So popular was Mirror Mirror that it's frequently used as a kind of shorthand to indicate all is not well in other tellings of similar stories. If someone has a goatee beard, for example, they are said to be an evil twin. Other shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Supernatural rely so heavily on people being aware of this trope that they don't even bother doing a lot of exposition. They reference Mirror Mirror and they move on. Despite the popularity of the episode, it was nominated for a Hugo Award in 1968 as Best Dramatic Presentation, it took Star Trek a while to realise what a goldmine they had in the mirrored universe. After that initial 1967 adventure, none of the comics or novels based upon Star Trek really ventured back, although it has to be said, prior to Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, people tended to steer away from direct sequels to old episodes. After Wrath of Khan, however, the floodgates opened, and now it feels like even the third triple from the left from that one episode has had a story about it. Back in 1984, though, the idea of a sequel to an old episode was relatively new. DC Comics had started publishing Star Trek comic books in 1983, after the release of Wrath of Khan, but before Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. Taking a leaf from Marvel Comics' playbook with the successful Star Wars series, DC elected to set the comic in then-current continuity, i.e. between the movies. To this end, writer Mike W. Barr decided to follow up DC's adaptation of Star Trek III with an epic-length story set partially in the Mirror Universe. Barr deserves credit for not only bringing the concept back, but for being one of the first to do so. After Bar, novels, further comics, and even actual episodes of the various Star Trek series continued the Mirror Universe saga to varying degrees of success. New Frontiers, later renamed the Mirror Universe saga for trade paperback, ran from Star Trek number 9 to issue number 16, published by DC Comics and cover dated December 1984 to July 1985. It was written, as I said, by Mike W. Barr, with art by Tom Sutton and Ricardo Villagran. 
The art is a mixed bag throughout, but kudos to Sutton and Villagram for having such a long run on this comic and maintaining a tight monthly schedule. Together they worked on nearly every issue of the series' 56 issue run, with only a few fill-in artists. The covers to the series are interesting, and again vary in quality. Issue 19, the first after the release of Trek 3, is a strange shot of everyone, including Savak and Carol Marcus, looking at some off-panel event. Likenesses are fine, with Savak still resembling Kirsty Alley, but she has no neck, so her head just seems to be floating alongside everybody else. Speaking of everyone else, they are all recognisable without being drawn slavishly to remember the actors. The best cover is issue 12, with the Enterprise attacking the Excelsior, and is pretty dynamic. The others are fine, they do the job, without being terribly spectacular. I will be continuing my look at the 50th birthday of Star Trek's Mirror Mirror with an in-depth look at this comic series. But first, let's get the synopsis out of the way, should we? Whilst Kirk and crew return to face the music after the thieving of the Enterprise to rescue Spock, the now reanimated Vulcan remains at home to recover. Elsewhere, after 15 years of trying, the evil mirror duplicates of Captain Kirk, Mr. Spock, etc. from a parallel dimension have managed to break through the dimensional barrier and plan to invade our universe. Speaking of our universe, following a reunion with Carol Marcus and a funeral service for David, Admiral Kirk and the crew hand themselves over to Starfleet. They are picked up by Captain Stiles and the USS Excelsior, who learns of an attack on a nearby starbase, and the Excelsior proceeds to check it out. Excelsior is attacked and outmaneuvered by the ISS Enterprise, as Captain Kirk proves himself as adept and military commander as Admiral Kirk. After taking over the Excelsior, the Mirror Universe counterparts discover that our universe has a working genesis device which they lack, and Mirror Spock believes our Spock holds the key to making Genesis work. As Spock heads to Vulcan in the Klingon Bird of Prey to retrieve Spock, Captain Kirk throws Admiral Kirk in the brig but Admiral Kirk manages to escape from the Enterprise and overthrow the crew. There, Admiral Kirk gets it on with Marlena Moreau from the episode Mirror Mirror and prepares to take on Captain Kirk. On Vulcan, Spock arrives to meet with Spock, where he discovers through a mind meld that the Faltor Pan is failing and our Spock is descending into madness. The mind meld causes our Spock to awaken, however, and both Spocks fight a mental battle for supremacy. Back on the Enterprise, Kirk battles Kirk, but Captain Kirk manages to activate a self-destruct sequence on his Enterprise that Admiral Kirk cannot deactivate. The Admiral orders a source of separation as the Enterprise explodes behind him. This move takes Captain Kirk by surprise and gives Admiral Kirk the upper hand. Admiral Kirk uses the Tantalus field, again from the Mirror Mirror episode, to make the power converter from the Excelsior disappear from their engine room, and with the Excelsior adrift, Admiral Kirk and his crew board the Excelsior. Captain Kirk is waiting, but Admiral Kirk defeats him in a Trekkian fistfight, and all of the Mirror Universe crew are put in stasis. Taking the Excelsior, Admiral Kirk then decides to head to the Mirror Universe to stop the planned invasion as a Klingon bird of prey drops out of warp behind them. Using the transwarp drive as a way to travel across the dimensions, Admiral Kirk pretends to be Captain Kirk and cons the Empire Council into believing he plans to help them invade. In reality, Kirk uses Marlena to make contact with the Rebellion, led by his son David Marcus, to help them overthrow the Empire. Admiral Kirk tells David the plan is to lead an invasion fleet and then turn on it from within. Spock and Spock manage to use the Klingon Bird of Prey to join the Admiral, Spock now feeling better, and Spock having had a change of heart after being exposed to Spock's thoughts. 
However, unbeknownst to David, a traitor loyal to the Empire is working within the Rebellion, and informs the Empire of Kirk's plan, just as Kirk is about to lead said fleet into our dimension. As battle rages, the Spocks jump back into the Bird of Prey and use its cloaking technology to launch an attack on the enemy. With the first plan scotched, Kirk takes the Excelsior to Gamma Trianguli 3, where the Spocks go to speak to the Klingon High Command, with the first Klingon in Starfleet, Konob, in tow. Gamma Trianguli 3 is where the Empire keeps their scientists prisoners, and Kirk leads a landing party to retrieve one, a Dr. Pedersen, as these scientists could help turn the tide in favour of the Rebellion. Kirk and co. succeed and return to the Excelsior, as the Spocks manage to gain an audience with the Klingons. Managing to bring both the Klingons and the Romulans to the party, Kirk organises an uneasy truce. Scotty manages to figure out a way to the disabled Empire starships, and the final battle is engaged as Mira Savick manages to wake up from stasis and overpowers our Savick. She arrives on the bridge as Admiral Kirk is about to take on the Mira Excelsior, but her attempt at sabotage is thwarted. Savick's botching of the control panel does make the Excelsior susceptible to phaser fire, and as Savick flees from the bridge, Admiral Kirk does what he does best, snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. See, Scotty removed a few key components from the Excelsior's engines, so when the Empire copied them, they had an Excelsior with a few screws loose. Mira Savick rushes to free her compatriots from stasis, but in doing so, our Savick phases them, and they are beamed over to a shuttle and left adrift. They are found by an Empire starship and killed for the reward on their head. Kirk gives David a fleet and Mirror Spock stays behind to help with the mop-up. The Excelsior warps home. Interesting story. Uh, Bar does a great job with it, particularly with issue nine, which which opens up the adventure. He picks up where Star Trek Three left off and essentially devotes a lot of time to character, knowing that this is a storyline that's going to go on for a while. It's a sedate opening, quite melancholic, and is arguably a better follow-up than Star Trek Four. Kirk and crew deciding to go and face the music is a nice touch, as is the idea that Spock's Faltor Pan hasn't gone quite according to plan, it being some while since it was done. There are some nice appearances from Sarek, Amanda Grayson, Talar and Carol Marcus. And in fact, this story gives us something that the films didn't. Closure between Kirk and Carol. Barr seems to be following the Trek 2 portrayal of Kirk, a man who is not dealing at all well with middle age and his life choices. He's been slapped by Carol upon her learning of David's death is a powerful moment. All her decisions to keep David out of Kirk's life justified in that one instance. It's a very well-written scene, and something that we should have seen in the films, but sadly didn't. Seeing regular one again is also a nice touch, as it makes sense that Carol would return there to pick up the pieces after the Khan incident. David's funeral is well handled by Barr, including Kirk once again mentioning Let Me Help, a line from The City on the Edge of Forever. Barr also purrs off the crew nicely to discuss the situation they find themselves in. Whilst Kirk and McCoy visit with Carol, Scotty and Savick attend to the engines of the Bird of Prey and have a game of chess. Sulu, Uhura and Chekhov ponder what they have done and what it will mean for their career. Sulu and Uhura seemingly have no regrets, although Barr takes his cue from the novel for Star Trek II, where we learn Sulu is about to be given his own command. But Chekhov, in particular, is deeply despondent. 
I do have to lay claim to being curious to how Sulu got his own command, being as he doesn't seem to have actually been a first officer anywhere, or indeed have left the Enterprise, but there was a lot of time between the motion picture and the Wrath of Khan where this could have been pursued. Captain Styles from Star Trek 3 is given the task of bringing Kirk and Co. in. Why they don't just go to Earth themselves after seeing Carol isn't really brought up, but it's possible they don't think a Klingon bird of prey will be too welcome in Federation space. The first two-thirds of issue 9 concentrate on character, and this slowed-down pace is actually quite appreciated. It means, though, that the story only really kicks off on page 19 of issue 9, with the Mirror Universe Enterprise crew attacking Regular 1 after Mirror Carol has finally managed to work out how to travel to our universe after 15 years of scientific exploration. I actually thought this was a decent touch. By the time we reach Deep Space Nine, hopping over to the Mirror Universe is easier than popping out for a pint of milk, but here it's taken the Empire 15 years of research to accomplish this. We quickly learn Mirror Kirk has killed David, and after taking the data, he also kills Carol, and destroys Regular One. Notably, the Mirror crew is the same as our own, with the addition of comics-only characters Bryce and Burklaw. Chekhov and Sulu are still here, oddly. I would have thought that after the events of Mirror Mirror, Kirk would have had them killed. Unusually, Khan doesn't seem to have returned in the Mirror Universe, and the events of Spock's death also never happened. It actually makes sense, because had Mirror Kirk found Khan drifting in space during the Space Seed adventure, he probably just blew up the Botany Bay and moved on. Bard juggles his subplots throughout the story very well. Spock's Faltor pan is unravelling, and Styles is a massive asshole in true Starfleet Admiral tradition. He gloats constantly over Kirk's actions. Kirk tries to tell him to stop being cocky, but it's to no avail. Speaking of the Enterprise, the Mirror Universe sneak attack is well played, reminiscent of Khan's attack on the Enterprise in Star Trek II. Excelsior seriously outpowers Enterprise, but Mirror Kirk is easily a better tactician than Styles, using the Klingon Bird of Prey against them. This is a well-done and exciting battle sequence, if a little crowded in the art department. The bridge of the Excelsior and the Enterprise are far too busy, but it is easy to hear James Horner's music when reading the scene. As we head into issue 11, though, little errors are starting to creep into the art. I appreciate how hard it must be to keep track of which crew are which, especially as Barr makes the unusual choice of keeping both the Mirror Universe and the Prime Universe in the same uniforms. But editors are there to catch mistakes. Granted, it does make Kirk's rather reckless plan of just saying, no, I'm Captain Kirk, work a little bit better. Having the same uniform on this time makes it easy for him to pass himself off as the original Captain Kirk. Kirk manages to steal the Enterprise yet again, and Bar leads us on a merry chase. This would have been an obvious way for Kirk to get the Enterprise back after the events of 3, but Bar throws us a curveball by having Mirror Kirk remotely set the destruct sequence, leading Kirk to perform the first saucer separation of the series. This is exceptionally good, well-written, tense stuff, but also very subtly shows how Mirror Kirk underestimates Admiral Kirk. In a wonderful line of dialogue, Mirror Kirk thinks that Admiral Kirk would never think of this, because he doesn't have the stones to destroy his own ship to beat a foe, despite that being exactly what he did in Star Trek III. Mirror Spock, Mirror Sulu and Mirror Chekhov head to Vulcan to retrieve Prime Spock, as he may contain the secret of Genesis wrapped up in his Faltor pan. Barr is following the threads of the previous two movies far more successfully than the actual movies would do, keeping Genesis at the heart of the story and ensuring its ramifications are felt for longer. 
mirrors Spock, punishes Sulu for shooting Amanda, and then mind melds with Spock to gain the information needed. Again, Barr throws the reader a curve by inadvertently having mirror Spock be the exact thing Spock needs to help heal his addled mind. The mind meld also causes mirror Spock to see the error of his ways and join in the rebellion. Where Barr really excels, though, is in getting little character moments in amidst the action. He contrasts Mirror Spock's life of distrust and betrayal with Spock's life of respect and scientific exploration. He shows how Mirror Kirk has no problems killing his entire crew to get to Admiral Kirk, and even manages to drop a few killer one-liners in from Dr. McCoy. Sure, Scotty being able to rewire the Tantalus field straight into the main view screen so quickly is a bit convenient, but it is a nifty solution to the problem. Unlike Spock, Marlena took Kirk's message in Mirror Mirror to heart and now works for the Rebellion Against the Empire. Which sounds vaguely familiar now that I think about it. Anyway, this is a long story, but it's really quite fast-paced with lots of unusual twists and turns. Issue 12 essentially takes Mirror Kirk and the crew off the table halfway through the story, something one would have thought would have been the climax of this tale, and instead then takes a left turn, twisting the story into something different from where it began. He also uses the expanded page count and unlimited budget to delve more fully into the Mirror Universe. We get to see what Mirror Earth looks like, the Empire Council, and what the political situation of the Mirror Universe is, bearing a substantial resemblance to the Roman Empire. For some reason, though, Tom Sutton seems to think that the Mirror Universe is London in 1976, and that the fashion of the day will be lots of punks walking around with mohawks and safety pins through their noses. Barr extrapolates that the Mirror Universe came about when Earth lost the Earth-Romulan War, and after a decade of oppression, the Earth rebelled and then vowed to never be conquered again. Others have perhaps speculated that the Mirror Universe rose out of Edith Keeler and the episode City on the Edge of Forever, whereby her preventing the United States from entering World War II led to the rise of the Empire. This is perhaps too much of a coincidence. Keeler only rose to prominence after Dr. McCoy saved her life, so inadvertently the Enterprise calls the Mirror Universe, so the Romulan War version works for here. This was later contradicted by Star Trek Enterprise, when the Mirror Universe was said to have arisen when first contact with the Romulans went slightly askew. The Resistance operate from under San Francisco and seemingly has very shitty security, because they let the notorious Empire Captain James T. Kirk just walk into the building unmolested, and have a spy in their midst that they don't even seem to suspect. David Marcus still being alive is a delightful turn, but of course Kirk is more surprised and delighted to see Spock back on his feet. The story still requires a certain suspension of disbelief. For example, despite it taking 15 years for the Empire to figure out how to cross universes, Kirk and Co. do it in minutes with the aid of the transwarp drive. Kirk being portrayed by the spy isn't perhaps the surprise it could have been, but the battle between the Excelsior and the rest of the Empire fleet is well executed. The art is the problem here. Angles, designs and lighting all seem off, and Sutton seems to get a little bit confused by the discrepancies between the Mirror Universe and our characters, with Marlena Moreau being referred to at more than one occasion as Uhura. One can only wonder how much better this could have looked if Al Williamson or Dave Cockrum, both excellent space opera artists, had drawn it. Still, it's fun to see Kirk outnumbered under serious stress, just to see him handle it with his customary unflappable cool. There are a few major foobars with the battle, though, but largely due to events that came after this, and therefore aren't really Barr's fault. 
Kirk's victory relies heavily on Spock, Mirror Spock and Conan beaming over to a cloaked bird of prey, which then fires at the Empire vessels whilst cloaked. This would be rendered null and void by the events of The Next Generation, although Star Trek VI would feature a Klingon ship that can fire when cloaked, so it doesn't seem to be a deal-breaker. I should also at this point mention Conan, who I've touched upon twice during this long ramble. One of the things Bard did in his run was introduce his own characters to the series. Bryce, Burklaw, Sherwood and Conan. Conan was a Klingon who despised violence and disliked the Klingon Empire, and so defected to become the first Klingon in Starfleet. This, of course, was all negated by Next Generation when Worf was established as the first Klingon in Starfleet. The unlimited budget allows for more extensive action than has been seen previously in Star Trek, and Barr was quite prescient in showing that Trek would go more in this direction later on. As Kirk and Savick free the Empire scientists, Sulu is on Excelsior, and the Spocks are on the Klingon homeworld here called Class, rather than Quonos. It's effective for a comic book, but probably far too expensive for TV. Kirk's plan B is pretty simple. Get the Klingons and Romulans of the Mirror Universe, who seem to be exactly the same as in our universe, to join forces to overthrow the Empire. Bard does a good job with characterising the Romulans and the Klingons as pretty cutthroat. And remember, this is before Next Generation changed the Klingons to be more like the Romulans. The plot then takes many more twists and turns, such as Mira Savick awakening from her stasis unbeknownst to Dr. McCoy and taking our Savick's place. I thought it would be quite funny if Tom Sutton had drew Mira Savick to look like Robin Curtis and our Savick to look like Kirstie Alley. The finale in issue 15 is satisfying, if not without a few problems. Barr keeps the character interplay intact whilst juggling his central plotline well, giving us the single most explosive starship battle ever seen in Star Trek to that point. He also does an excellent job of keeping who is who straight, although again, Tom Sutton seems to get very confused by this on more than one occasion, leading to some head-scratching moments in the art. This is a very good sequel to a very good episode, at a time when that trope hadn't worn out its welcome. Killing Captain Kirk at the end is shocking, but doesn't really leave room for a further sequel. The ending is also a bit of a head-scratcher. Kirk leaves the Rebellion with access to the Empire's fleet of starships, but that implies that Mira David is a good commander, seen as he seems to be in lead of the Rebellion, something that isn't really reinforced in our world, and not really reinforced in this particular story. It also doesn't seem to leave Earth in a very good position. The Romulan and the Klingon forces are much stronger at this point than the Earth is, and it would be quite easy to see the Klingons and the Romulans attack an Earth in disarray and pick up the pieces. Remember, the Romulans ruled Earth once not that long ago, so it's not stretching the point to assume that they wouldn't mind doing it again. It also once again allows the Prime Directive to rear its head. Repelling the invasion from the Mirror Universe has no problems. It was an attack, and Kirk stopped it. However, Kirk actively helping the Rebellion, joining forces with the Klingons and the Romulans, encouraging an alliance between them, and then toppling the Empire, is a clear violation of the Prime Directive. Kirk arguably doesn't even leave the Mirror Universe in a better position here than it was in. Earth will now have a destabilised government, leaving it wide open to attack. This could have perhaps been addressed if there had been another issue to this story, where we learned a lot more about the political situation in the Mirror Universe, answering such questions as, is the Rebellion a ragtag group of ragamuffins, or is there a groundswell of support for them? Is the Empire struggling to maintain control? What do the people of Earth think? Do they even want the Empire toppled? None of these questions are posed. 
The Empire needs toppling because they are the bad guys, pure and simple. In the original episode, Kurt gives Mirrorspock something to think about, and if change happens, it will happen organically. Here, Kirk topples a foreign government because he doesn't like how they do business. Star Trek isn't Star Wars. It's not that black and white or that simple. Still, this is an enjoyable and action-packed Star Trek adventure. Each issue tends to be longer than normal, featuring 23 pages of story. And this final issue, number 15, is 25 pages, crowding out the letters page. It's available in numerous trade collections, but I think this is worth tracking down in the issues. Not only do you get the letters page, which were our only up-to-date and wholly reliable source of information about the upcoming Star Trek IV, but you get the delightful adverts of the period. It's probably hard for newer Trek fans to relate to, but when this was published, all we had were 79 TV shows, 22 cartoons and 3 films, so the Trek universe was a much smaller place. Barr wraps the whole thing up in an epilogue that appeared in issue 60. Kirk leaks the details of the invasion and his part in it to the press. With Kirk venerated as a hero for his actions, Starfleet has no choice but to reward the Admiral with a new position. Captain of the Excelsior. The Fleet Admiral, Stephen Turner, tasks Kirk and his crew to give the NX-2000 a decent shakedown, as far away from them as humanly possible. All except Spock, who's given his own command. The science vessel USS Surak. The human adventure continues. interesting about this issue is how much Burr actually prefigured future events. Kirk and Co were given a slap on the wrist in a new ship, as would happen in Trek 4. There is a new vessel for adventures, as would happen in Voyager, where the Enterprise wasn't the centre of the action. There would be two crews to follow, as happened with the Titan novels and the new Discovery TV show, and Kirk would save Earth from an outside threat. Essentially, it's resetting the series after Trek 3, which really did leave the Star Trek world in a right old mess. By giving Kirk the Excelsior and splitting him up from Spock, they aren't just redoing the TV show, but instead being allowed to explore different facets of the Star Trek universe. They would continue with this setup until Star Trek IV, when a mind meld would undo Spock's mental state, and he had to return to Vulcan for the events of the fourth film. These DC adventures are a lot of fun. None of the Trek novels take place in between Star Trek II and IV, for obvious reasons, so at the time this was New Trek. New adventures with the crew in real time. Robert Greenberger ran the letters page and did a good job of keeping us up to date with the newest developments regarding the film, as they apparently had a good dialogue with Harve Bennett and the Paramount liaison of the time. They worked the continuity of the films into their narrative, and it still all mostly works, in the same way Marvel did with Star Wars. 
At the very least, these are entertaining Trek adventures. Diane Duane, Walter Koenig, J. Michael Straczynski and Peter David all had stories published in this initial run and it developed the characters in ways the subsequent DC series weren't allowed to do. Once The Next Generation arrived, Paramount kept Trek on a much tighter leash. This DC series is well worth seeking out if you want to go back to a time when Star Trek comics were truly going boldly. everybody, Magnus here. You know, a lot of people make fun of 1990s comics. The way they tell it, you'd almost think they weren't avidly collecting those same comics themselves. But me? I've got a real soft spot for 90s comics. And so, starting in December of 2017, I'm launching a six-part mega-series called Cover Date, January 1991. The idea is to talk about, well, comics with a January 1991 cover date. Anyway, yeah, that's right. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is going back to January 1991 for a look back at what comics were really like. Is it really as bad as people say? Well, there's only one way to find out. I want you to test drive some 1990s comics along with me. Who knows? You just might find something to fall in love with all over again. So, come back to January 1991 with Trennis Magnus for a fond, festive, frolicking trip down memory lane. The fun starts in December 2017 only at Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. You can find Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at 2TrueFreaks.com or by searching in iTunes. Or, I guess you could search on Google if you're feeling really lazy. Cover date. January 1991 because 1990s comics are awesome. Okay, let's have a look at some emails. Daniel Doherty emailed in, The Palace of Hulk and Thor. Hey Andy, your incredible Hulk Returns commentary with Michael Bailey was, well, incredible. With all the modern comic book movies we're currently getting from Marvel Studios, it's sometimes easy to forget that for decades shows like The Incredible Hulk with Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno were all we had. Back in the 90s, the Sci-Fi Channel used to show the Incredible Hulk television series and reunion movies on a regular basis, along with the Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man and Red Brown Captain America as part of the annual Mighty Marvel Marathon. You take care of yourself, Andy. Sincerely, Dan. Well, you're very welcome, Dan. Thank you very much. And uh, Dan has been one of those people who's kind of semi-provoked this past couple of episodes, these Star Trek shows. So thank you for that, Dan. 
Uh, our next uh, email is from Oliver Villa. Hello, Oliver. Hi, Andy. While I know you as the co-host of both the Fantasticast and Hey Kids Comics, I learned of the Palace of Glittering Delights from your appearance on Supermates as you discussed the amazing Spider-Man TV movie with Chris and Cindy. You and Michael Bailey did a great job on the commentary of Incredible Hulk Returns. I remember watching it on the Sunday night of May 22nd, 1988, which was a month and three days before my 15th birthday. Being a huge Spidey fan, I enjoyed the untold tales and the Ditko retro perspectives. Ramita Senior will always be my Spider-Man artist, just for the record. I also came across the Starsky and Hutch episode and was a huge fan of that series. I look forward to future episodes. Keep up the good work, Oliver. Well, thank you very much, Oliver. It's very nice to hear from you, and that's very much appreciated. Uh, I am considering revisiting the Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man series at some point, you know, just, just because I'm a masochist. Uh, the next email is for Return of the Hulk from David Gutierrez. Hello, David. Guys, holy shit, what a great episode. The opening theme voiceover was probably one of the best things you've ever done. Well, good. I'm, I'm that glad you enjoyed it. I, we had fun doing it. You never know how these things are going to translate. I have vivid memories, continues David, of this movie's original erring. My two comic friends and I called each other during commercial breaks because we were so psyched about what was happening. Until the end. Yeah, that was dragging feet. Re, the wrong guys. Michael, did you know there was a Danny Bilson Paul DeNeo movie? They were a good friends with Tim Thomason from their Charlie Band days and became friends with Richard Belzer before the wrong guys were shot. Belzer, of course, ends up in The Flash as a reporter before ending up in Baltimore in New York as a detective. Re, the death of the Incredible Hulk. As a kid, I wondered why Elizabeth Grayson's character wasn't the Black Widow. It would have worked just the same. Also, never talk badly about Amanda Bailey. Ever. David M. Gutierrez. Well, I'm going to let you and, and Michael fight that out, David, because uh, I'd never actually watched the Highlander spin-off series starring Amanda. So I, I have no comment on it. Chris Franklin emailed in with The Incredible Bailey Returns, which, which Michael probably loved. Hello, Andy and Michael. I thoroughly enjoyed your commentary on The Incredible Hulk Returns. It was a huge deal to me in 1988, having heard of it from comic scene, as you mentioned. I was not disappointed, although even then I felt that some of the series class had given away to late 80s cheese, like what we were getting every week on syndicated shows like Superboy, Mike's Secret Identity and others. Just a bit, mind you. You still had the completely sincere performance of Bill Bixby and the incredibly buff Lou Ferrigno to make up for it. When Good Luck Shirley came on, I instantly recognised the dad as the former Odinson. As the series progressed, he got back into godly shape, even. I would love to see him get a film cameo, but he needs to get in line behind Red Brown and Nicholas Hammond. I was really hoping for a Thor series and even a Daredevil one, although I was hoping he'd get a better suit. I liked Rex Smith from Street Hawk. Yes, I was the one kid that liked that series and watched every episode. I would love to hear you guys cover the trial of the Incredible Hulk. Come on, you know you want to, Chris. I don't know that want to is the word I'd use, Chris. Speaking of Street Hawk, stay tuned. Chris also got another email in under the wire, which was about the Mirror Mirror commentary that I released uh, just a couple of days ago as I record this. Hello, Andy. Loved your commentary on Mirror Mirror, but then I could listen to you talk about Trek all day, and I myself have had the pleasure of talking Trek with you. Yes, yes, Chris has. If you want to scroll past the older episodes of this show, Chris and I did a discussion of another couple of issues 
of this DC Comics series written by Mike Barr. Um, and it was a good conversation as well. One of the easiest edits I've ever done. I basically plopped an opening tag on it, plopped an end tag on it, cut out a bit in the middle where I had to go and answer the door, and that was it. It was, it was one of the simplest edits I've done. Talking to Chris is always a joy. I was in a good place to hear you talk about the positive aspects of the Shat as well, having just enjoyed his voice work in Batman vs. Two-Face. Yes, Shatner can be hammy, but the man's got the goods. Episodes like this prove it. He really does convey Kirk's calm demeanour under fire. Another misnomer about Kirk is that he's constantly in hothead action mode, that he's reckless. An examination of the series will quickly disprove this, and I'd point to this episode as a prime example. Kirk plays it cool as possible in trying to save the Halkins and not have the true nature discovered before they are able to escape. But boy, that fight scene with Spock. Is it worse than the fight between the would-be Kirk and Khan in Space Seed? Probably. Thanks to Mark Cushman's books, which you turned me onto, thank you very much, and other sources, I now know that many times these stunt double substitutions were done just as often for time and budget reasons as safety to the actors. The stunt doubles could be filmed while the star was shooting or prepping for another scene. It's unfortunate that HDTVs make these replacements so obvious in shows like Star Trek and Batman. Victor Paul is obviously 20 years older than Burt Ward and has a large nose and a receding hairline. Every time the boy Wonder goes into action, he ages horribly. I wish Trek had taken the tact of a contemporary show, The Wild Wild West. Robert Conrad seems to do at least 90% of his own impressive stunt work in each show. It's a series I was only vaguely familiar with growing up, but I've been catching it lately on MeTV, and the show's commitment to showing their actual star in action is to be commended. Great show about one of my absolute favourite Trek episodes. A true classic, and of course, it inspired not only many sequels, but at the very least popularised the notion of the evil universe. Chris, which is, indirectly, what this entire episode you've just listened to was about. So thank you very much to Chris, David, Oliver and Daniel for emailing in. Before we go, I just have a desire to throw out a public thank you. I was in a supermarket not too long ago and I spotted five uh, exclusive figures from Star Wars as part of its 40th anniversary. Luke, Han, Leia, Ben Kenobi and Darth Vader. And I rather cheekily Posted on Twitter, uh, you know, if anyone wants to buy me these, that'd be great, because they were 20 quid each, and that was a little bit out of my price range at that particular moment. Well, Aaron Henley, friend of the show, uh, actually bought them for me and sent them to me. So, much thanks to Aaron for that totally unexpected and thoroughly uh, appreciated gift. I was uh, a little bit gobsmacked by that, Aaron, to be brutally honest with you, but they've been given a comfortable home on the top shelf of the bookshelf upstairs in the bedroom, where my wife has said, all right, you can have them on the shelf, as opposed to, you can put them away. She doesn't say stuff like that, really. Uh, But thank you, publicly, thank you for that, Aaron. It was very much appreciated. Uh, And I love them. I think they're absolutely brilliant figures. Uh, Okay, that one wraps this up, this particular episode up, as usual. I'm going to do the usual spiel that I always say, that uh, we can't do this show without you. So if you're buying anything from Amazon, pop over to the Two True Freaks homepage and click on the Amazon link when you do your purchases. Costs you nothing extra, but it helps us make shows like this without having to dip into our own pockets. We appreciate it because um, we're not we're not Patreon funded or anything like that. We just like to keep the lights on and be able to keep 
funding the shows that we very much enjoyed doing. Palace of Glitter and Delights is a proud member of the Two True Freaks family of podcasts. Uh, or go and check out some of our other shows. All of them are of a high quality, or at least I think they are. Next time on the Palace of Glittering Delights, I've got a couple of things in the fire. A couple of irons in the fire, not just general things. That would be silly, having general things in the fire. I mean, what if they set fire to something useful? That would just be ridiculous. Um, I, I think next time we're going to steer away from the obvious and we're going to go down the rabbit hole of, of something unusual again, like I, uh, I occasionally like to do. But I haven't quite settled on what that is yet, so I'm going to play that close to my chest. If you have anything to say or suggestions, like Dan Doherty did when he provoked these two Star Trek episodes, feel free to email me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com or swing by Facebook, where I'm on as Andrew Leyland, or Twitter, where I'm on as at IAP Leyland, and say hi. It's always nice to hear from you. I'll be back next time with whatever the hell it is I decide to ramble on about incessantly. You take care. Goodbye.